Leonie Watson is an accessibility engineer and a director at the British Computer Association of the Blind. Leonie, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. You wrote a blog post called Losing Sight, which is riveting, and I'll put it in the show notes. Before we get to how you actually lost your sight, I'd like to hear some about your experience as a web developer in the late 90s dot-com boom. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. That's really the best way to describe it. Uh, everything you know, felt very new. Um, I'd been using the, the web pretty much since it began, since, you know, 93, 94, and uh, came to it as a career a, a little bit later in the 90s. Uh, so to put this into context, when I first started building websites, we didn't have CSS at all. So, um, you know, it was a much more simple world than it is now, certainly. Um, but there was this great sense of, you know, uh, possibility. Uh, you know, people were talking about things that now, you know, I love to, to kind of think about it, but we, people were talking very seriously about, um, you know, entire virtual online worlds, um, you know, long before Second Life became a thing briefly and then disappeared again. Um, you know, and we had this, this, this you know, amazing uh, thing to play with, um, and then that's kind of really what everybody was doing. Was, you know, how do we how do we create new stuff? How far can we push this? And actually, that's the spirit of the web that I don't think has been lost along the way. I think that's still, uh, you know, one of the brilliant things about the web is just all these developers and engineers and designers out there going, you know what? How can we push this? How can we do more? How can we how can we move things differently, shape them in different ways to come up with something new and exciting? And, and that's, how, that's, how old were you around that time? Uh, so I turned 20 in 1994. So I was yeah, my mid-20s. Okay. And where did you time. work in the late 90s? Uh, I worked for one of the first internet service providers in the UK, uh, a company that was started up in 95 uh, to provide internet services. And I started out actually on their tech support desk um, and somebody in their wisdom decided that uh, they needed to open the tech support desk 24 hours and bear in mind this was before most people were really using the internet so the idea of anybody phoning up for tech support at two o'clock in the morning was you know slightly optimistic <laughs> so I got dreadfully bored so I just started teaching myself how to code websites and, and you know fell in love with doing that and the whole creativity and you know having an online presence uh and yet, kind of sort of blossomed from there, really. Did it feel like a bubble around that time? No, I don't think it did. I, it, it wasn't until, you know, the crash came and, and we all kind of looked back and went, you know what, we were all running around like a bunch of kids having fun. We, you know, uh, we made some mistakes. I don't think it was really until then that we kind of realized, um, yeah, that it was a bubble. I guess, you know, people... Who, who work on the stock markets and, you know, financial institutions probably took a very different view of it. You know, the the extraordinary amounts of money that were, were being thrown around in the early days of the the web, you know, probably sent well, up and so in, re in, in retrospect, were there any signs, uh, like cultural signs that, that uh, you know, indicated a bubble? Like, you know, people talk about bubble, you know, right now. I'm wondering if, if you see any parallels uh, parallels with now? No, no, not at all. I, I think because you know the uh, the dot com crash of 
of you know sort of early 2000 is still you know pretty firmly entrenched in too many people's minds uh, for it to have been forgotten um, so no I, I i don't really kind of liken it to to the situation mm. we're in now interesting do you think there's a there's a an air of like over conservatism whereas like even to some people it looks like a bubble but maybe to others you know i don't know if yourself is included in this but if you see it as a more fundamental uh positive shift maybe uh there's underinvestment do you think that's a possibility i i think there was you know probably up until a few years ago so immediately after the you know the crash mm-hmm. in, in the early 2000s certainly there was a very uh, you know, adverse reaction, um, both in terms of, you know, it became very, very difficult to get get funding of any kind. Um, but also you saw it a lot in businesses that I was working for a startup or I went to work for a startup in 2003, uh, you know, and, and they took great pains to present themselves very professionally in meetings you know they would turn up in suits and you know looking very uh, very typically business-like if you see what i mean which was completely surest sign of fraud <laughs> but it was this is it was this you know because you know in society there was a bit of a reaction you know you guys on the web you're all just running around you know playing silly so-and-sos we can't take you seriously you can't be trusted to run businesses you know you screwed it all up so there was this kind of sort of reaction where where we almost had to become very serious, too serious, and, uh, you know, convey this very business-like sort of, uh, you know, appearance to sort of counteract that kind of somewhat mistrust, I think, in, in the industry at that time. But, but you know, that was, that was a go, you know, we're the better part of 15 years away from that now. And I, I, I think now we're in a pretty good space, actually. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of confidence in, in digital technology and the web. Um, but I think it's also tempered with, you know, experience. And, and mm. I think that puts us in a pretty good position. Yeah, I agree. So against this backdrop of the dot-com boom in 1999, you lost your eyesight due to diabetes complications. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that morning in October 1999 when you woke up with a hangover and you noticed (laughs) a ribbon of blood in your line of sight. Well, that morning, in some respects, was quite unremarkable because I really just thought I'd bust a blood vessel in my eye because I'd been out drinking the night before. Um, so it, in itself that morning, as I say, wasn't, wasn't anything um, remarkable at the time. Uh, but looking back, of course, it's, it's now the point I, I realized that that was the first physical sign that, that there was something wrong with my sight. Uh, you know, and in, in due course, a couple of days later, I took myself to, to get my eyes checked out and, and, that led to you know more consultations, more medical investigations, which ultimately turned up the fact that I had this this eye condition called diabetic retinopathy. Uh, so yeah, that was the start of the the journey, I suppose. Uh, what is diabetic re- retinopathy? It's a, a condition that happens um, to actually it happens to a, a lot of diabetics. Uh, who've been diabetic for a very long time, so especially uh, people who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a child. Uh, type 1 means you have to inject insulin. You can't control it with, with uh, diet or, or tablets. Uh, and, and you quite often find that uh, people who are diagnosed as, as children, when they get to old age, um, experience difficulties with their eyes because of retinopathy. But it happens to people like me um, who 
don't take care of their diabetes well enough. So that accelerates the process. And when you don't control your diabetes properly, one of the side effects is that your blood gets so congested with excess sugar that it stops being able to send oxygen to important bits of your body. And one of the bits of your body that's most sensitive to that lack of oxygen is the retina because it's fed by very, very tiny little blood vessels. And so they break down and your body tries to compensate, create new blood vessels in an effort to get the oxygen needed to that part of your body. And uh, because the, the blood vessels are created under emergency conditions, if you like, they're weak and they break. Uh, and that's what led to the, the, the busted blood vessel that I could see that, that morning uh, in October that you just mentioned. And, and once somebody is diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy, such as in your case, what are the acute measures that can be taken to try to um, fix things or reverse course? You can't reverse course with um, type 1 diabetes. And it's it, it's quite important to understand the difference. There are two sorts. So the type you hear about on the news is known as type 2. And that's one that's often caused by um, people being overweight or, you know, environmental conditions uh, of one sort or another. And that can often be reversed or if not reversed, pretty easily controlled through just a good, healthy, balanced diet and uh, some tablet-based medication. But type 1 diabetes is where actually your pancreas, the, the organ in your body that produces the hormones that, that uh, convert all the food you eat into uh, you know, usable energy, uh, your pancreas actually stops working, stops producing insulin, which is the hormone you need. And so you have to inject it yourself uh, in order to, to sort of regulate your, your body's uh, you know, glucose levels. So, so type 1 isn't reversible, but it is completely manageable uh, unless you're an idiot like I was and <laughs> uh, generally ignored all the, uh, all the wisdom of the doctors and, um, and, and, and didn't manage it. But, you know, there are millions of people around the world who, who manage diabetes, type 1 diabetes, perfectly well. Um, you know, uh, well, there are also millions of people who make mistakes in their lives. Oh, so. absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm not, <laughs> not alone. <laughs> sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, tell me more about, and you discuss this uh, in great detail in your in your blog posts. Really, really interesting, and I really encourage listeners to check it out. Um, but what was the transformation? Describe the transformation from the day where you wake up with that ribbon of blood in your line of sight and the day where you go to sleep with just a fragment of your sight left and you wake up completely blind? Uh, well, it took about a year, uh, give or take a couple of weeks, uh, which in terms of uh, losing your sight over a period of time as opposed to, you know, through an abrupt accident or something, that's actually a very quick uh, time period. Uh, so most most people who lose their sight uh, over a period of time, it happens over a number of years, possibly even decades. So to do it in sort of 12 months is actually quite a fast turnaround, if I can put it like that. And that in some respects was equally terrifying. But also it meant that I transitioned from sort of one thing to the next so quickly that I probably didn't have time to stop and think about quite how appalling it was uh, as much as I, I probably would have done had it taken longer. So that, that probably sounds really strange, but 
Well, it's like tearing the Band-Aid off. Yeah, a little bit. Absolutely. Yes, it's a good good analogy. Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned that I sort of, you know, first saw that busted blood vessel in, in the October. So by kind of the February of the following year, um, it was quite apparent that I, I, I couldn't see straight anymore. You know, most stuff was pretty blurred. Uh, I couldn't work out details, you know, on things. And I'd tried using magnification software on my computer to sort of boost up the size of text and, and bits and pieces. Uh, and then by the May, you know, that had become a bit of a an impossible task and, and, and I stopped work. And no sooner I sort of got to the point where I'd stopped work, then it was my birthday in the summer. And that sort of, you know, brought a new stage of, uh, you know, not being able to see a few more things. You know, by that time I could I could see light and shadow, but not much else. And then by the sort of, you know, the autumn that was pretty much diminishing uh, through to the point in the December where, as you say, I'd sort of, you know, remember being able to see the last kind of smudges of, of bright light sources uh, and then that too disappeared. So, you know, everything sort of moved from one stage to the next so quickly that, yeah, I almost didn't have time to stop and really consider each stage as it happened, which was probably yeah. a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and you talk, in that blog post, you mentioned the moment when you realized that you would be blind forever and you said... Yeah. I cried for my lost sight, for all my broken dreams, for my stupidity, for all the books that I would never read, for the faces I would forget, and for all the things I would never accomplish. Mm-hmm. How did you move beyond that state emotionally? Um, that's a very good question, and there are probably different answers to it. Um, in in the first sense, I. Uh, I went to the doctor and said, actually, I can't cope. Uh, you need to, to help. And, and they put me on some antidepressants. And uh, I mentioned this in the, in the article. They basically put me to sleep. Uh, I, I, you know, I'd wake up for 10 minutes in the morning to, to, to see my now husband off to work. And he'd come and prod me when he got home again in the evening um, because I'd still be in bed and still be sound asleep. And that went on for several weeks uh, before I decided that, that really wasn't any sensible way to carry on through life and, and stop taking them. But, but somewhere that in that... That sounds like a depressant, not an antidepressant. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what it was. It was a yeah, showstopper, I think. Um, but, but somewhere in that kind of four, six weeks of, of pretty much just being constantly asleep, I think it just gave my brain time to process some of what was happening. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it was what you needed. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm not the sort of person to, to kind of live like that long term. Um, it's interesting because that's that's not the type of antidepressant that I hear about these days. The types of antidepressants I hear about are more like a, I don't know, they have some s- stimulant nature to them, I think, right. a lot of times. It, it's fortunately you know, and I count myself lucky just to be able to say this. It's it's not a subject I know a great deal about. It's the only mm. time in my life I've I've ever taken them. Um, it it may have been they were the wrong sort, or I have a unusual reaction to them, or I was you know prescribed something that you know mm. maybe had that more sedative. I honestly don't know, and sure, uh, and I've never really sort of stopped to to ask. Uh, truth yeah. be told, but um, and so beyond the the tranquil tranquilizing antidepressant state mm-hmm. once you got off of those what was your journey like um, f- 
fraught, <laughs> I think, is probably the, the short answer. It was difficult um, for a whole number of reasons. It's it's scary that there's no getting away from that. Uh, you know, if you if you ask most people who are sighted, uh, you know how they'd feel about losing their sight. You know, they'll tell you it scares them to death, and uh, you know it did did scare me. Um, you have to learn how to do so much again. You know, you sort of forget what it's like. We, we, we never really remember what it's like to learn stuff as a kid. You know, we don't tend to remember how it was to learn to read or uh, to tie our shoelaces, you know, when we got a bit older to, you know, chop vegetables for dinner or, you know, just, just all those kind of tiny little things. You sort of have to go back and learn how to do it again and, and they're all completely achievable but i'm not a patient person <laughs> that's, in some respects that's a good thing because it, it meant you know uh, my friends told me i you know i have a good dose of of what we call in england bloody mindedness um just to kind of you know a determination to get on with life and, and that served me well but it also means that, that you know i i would get i'd get very frustrated very cross with myself when i felt i couldn't learn how to do something again as quickly or as efficiently as I wanted to. Uh, and that was, yeah. You, I mean, you mentioned in, in the blog post, like an incident where, you know, you're just like in the kitchen, you're just like trying to wash dishes and you just end up like breaking a bunch of stuff. It's sound is like, it's hard uh, to read. That was, yeah. It's that, tough. <laughs> that was, it's one of those things you look back now and, and you can kind of laugh about it. But I, I just, um, I just tripped or I didn't even really trip. I just stumbled in the kitchen and put my hand out on the sideboard and caught the edge of the draining rack and literally just upended, I don't know how many plates and dishes and stuff all over the floor. And they literally just shattered like, you know, rain around me. And I could just remember standing in the kitchen and just reaching out for the phone on the wall and phoning up my mum and just come and help. Because I think I had bare feet at the time just to make things kind of, you know, more interesting. Just, of course. I'm just going to stay in the middle of the kitchen until you come, <laughs> <laughs> come and rescue me. And I so, say, you know, you, you can laugh about it now or I can, but uh, and that, yeah. you, know, you have to do that because uh, otherwise you'd cry a lot more than is entirely oh, yeah. good for any of us. But, you know, yeah, yeah, there were pretty horrible days like that and, and, and some worse. Yeah. So, okay. But, uh, you know, you're a computer person. So, like, one of the things I'm really interested about is like, you know, computers are not easy to operate. And I mean, well, all things considered. And how did you get from the point where, you know, you had trouble navigating the kitchen to the point where you can effectively, you know, have an influential computer job once again, even without sight? How, how, describe that training process, that retraining. Uh, it's it's slow. Um, you know, I, I mean, one of the first things I discovered when I I dug my computer back out of the cupboard was that I couldn't touch type, <laughs> which seems ridiculous. It, it seemed ridiculous to me then. You know, I've been using computers on and off since the you know the 1980s, and and yet I I'd never bothered to learn how to touch type because I could always see the keyboard oh <laughs> and so you know i literally had to go back and, and i discovered this you know piece of or, or type of software called a screen reader that translates what's on screen into synthetic speech and one of the things it does is when you hit a key it echoes the key back to you so you hit b it says b and so i went through this very painstaking process of you know just typing 
everything one character at a time and listening to the screen reader to make sure I got it right, realizing I'd hit the wrong key because, you know, I didn't have the muscle memory for touch typing. And, you know, somewhere along the line, I, I got a bit quicker and a bit quicker and a bit quicker. And then suddenly, you know, stopped thinking about it altogether, uh, you know, like you do when you first learn to, to, to use a keyboard in the first place. You know, it's unfamiliar at first, but at some point you you look up and you realize you haven't actually thought about how to type in, you know, however many weeks or months or days or whatever. How does a screen reader work? <laughs> um, it basically uh, sits uh, on top of the operating system. So uh, you get different screen readers for Windows, for Linux, for, for iOS, Android, OS X. And uh, they... they uh, there are APIs on uh, all operating system platforms, and those APIs make information available about what's on screen. So, you know, uh, you take an object like a button or a menu, and uh, the accessibility APIs just expose characteristics about that thing, you know, whether it has a text label, um, you know, how much uh, screen space it takes up, a whole, whole bunch of different characteristics, you know, what it is, what it does, what state it's in. Um, and screen readers just take that information and most commonly translate it into synthetic speech. So, you know, if you see a button on a web page, uh, my screen reader will say, hey, it's a button. And it has, you know, has a text label in it, then, then the screen reader will just announce the text label uh, and tell you that it's, you know, a submit button or a search button. Uh, and, and that's pretty much how they how they work. Uh, how, they, how does your workflow with a screen reader compare to your workflow as a programmer when you had Sight? Um, it probably hasn't changed all that much. Uh, I'm still pretty old school when it comes to coding. I, I just use a text editor, so I don't use any of the the more useful kind of IDEs or anything like that. Uh, mm -hmm. At some point, I think I probably tried, uh, decided that it was too much like hard work to try and overcome some of the accessibility challenges that those those applications sort of presented. Um, I just went back to yeah, using a, a text editor and, uh, and I've never really, really kind of dug myself out of out of that habit, particularly. So, so in a lot of respects, it hasn't changed. Some things take longer. So it's, um, it's harder to sort of debug code now. Um, mm. because Why? you can't do that sort of visual skimming thing. So, you know, yeah. you're, you're kind of got an inkling of where a bug, uh, you know, the root cause of a bug is, and you can kind of sort of visually skim back through the code. It just takes a bit longer to, to read that code when you've got to listen to it. Well, you know, I, it kind of reminds me of, I, I used to hear these stories from, well, I, I have heard these stories from, you know, old school programmers where, you have to write all your stuff and then put it in punch cards and then like <laughs> you only get one chance to run it and or well i mean you have to run it and then like it's really hard to debug it because it's like mm -hmm. you're running it on a mainframe or punch cards or whatever and so the stakes are raised so you ha it, it caused them to be correct the first time a lot more just because they knew there was so much pain associated with having to go back and debug it mm -hmm. yeah yeah there is there is something of that you I, I found, you know, yeah, you need a good memory, or it really helps to have a good memory. Actually, I mean, it helps to have a good memory if you're blind anyway, because, you know, you, you put something down, and unless you put it down in the place you expect to find it, you've got almost no chance of finding it again, <laughs> you know. So 
so kind of, you know, remembering what you did with stuff and, uh, you know, remembering how you laid out your code, where something is, you know, that's that that really does make a difference, actually having a, a good memory of, of how you wrote some code in the first place or, you know, where. What, what kinds of applications are you coding these days? Actually, these days I don't uh, I don't have much opportunity to to put anything oh, together in the complete okay. sense. Um, most of what I do now is is um, working with organisations to help them fix accessibility problems in their code. Uh, so I more often than huh. not end up uh, just either taking chunks of code and refactoring them uh, so that they they are accessible to people like me who use a screen reader or you know people with other disabilities or uh, just looking at kind of common design patterns. Uh, you know, and sharing those with with good accessibility, and to try and help developers, you know, minimize the amount of work they need to do to make stuff accessible. What What is a common design pattern that is either inaccessible or or a design pattern to refactor inaccessible code in inaccessible engineering to accessible engineering? Um, one of the things we come across at the moment. Um, uh, actually feeds into a, a side project that I've been working on with some some friends. Uh, we see a lot of tabbed interfaces and a lot of carousels, a lot of accordions, those kind of um, representations of content where there are multiple chunks of content, but only one is displayed at a time. And you want the ability to choose which one is displayed or cycle through each of them in turn. And uh, they're quite complicated, you know, complex interactions, but they don't. None of them really exist in HTML, so there are no elements for, you know, a set of tabs or a carousel. So we create them using kind of divs and spans that, that mm. in themselves, they're what we call semantically neutral elements. So they don't kind of make much information available to screen readers and other assistive technologies. So if you use a, you know, a heading tag, an H1 through H6 in HTML, um, the browser knows that's a heading. And the browser will tell a screen reader that's a heading, and the screen reader will tell me. But if you use a div and a span, there's no real kind of useful information. It's just a kind of a holding element, if that makes sense. So we have to try and add in the accessibility manually, and we, we can do that with things like the ARIA specification. But we're all having to do this as developers ourselves, and every time a, you know, a developer tries to do it, they do it a bit differently, or they have to start from scratch. And you know there are all these sort of complications that mean the whole process is kind of quite error prone. So all these complex widgets on the web tend to be a bit of a challenge for accessibility, both in terms of developing them and getting it right and actually using them with a technology like a screen reader. So are there are you saying that there are certain elements on a web page where the, the screen reader basically can't describe that element accurately to a blind person? Uh, div and span, actually, are pretty much it. So all, wow. pretty much all other um, HTML elements, so uh, images, paragraphs, tables, table headers, table rows, headings, uh, yeah, pretty pretty much every HTML element you can think of has uh, what we call an implicit role, um, and the, the browser knows what the role of each element is. P holds a paragraph, heading is a heading, image, you know, holds a graphic. Um, and because the browser understands what the role of each of those elements is, it can make that information available through the accessibility APIs I was talking about earlier so that screen readers can can pick up on that information and, and use it. But divs and spans are quite deliberately neutral. They don't have a particular role or a particular purpose of their own, which is why we use them to create you know custom widgets so much. Uh, Could you talk a little more 
about how a web page is converted to an audible format with the accessibility APIs? Uh, yeah, sure. So when you uh, load a page into the browser, uh, the browser does quite a lot of work actually on 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 your behalf, on the behalf of the developer and the the user. Uh, so developers in, in your audience will know that, that when you, you load a page into the browser, uh, the browser creates a document object model. So just a, a hierarchical tree uh, of all the content on the page. But what the browser also does is take a whole bunch of that information from the DOM and creates an accessibility tree. So it's the same hierarchical representation of all kind of different bits and pieces on the page. But this time it just contains information that's useful to assistive technologies. And then the screen reader comes along, um, basically, uh, you know, queries that accessibility tree to say, okay, what's the content? What have we got here? Do we have, you know, a bunch of plain text or is there images in there? Or, you know, are there links? Are there headings? Are there tables? You know, all those kind of things. Uh, and with that information, um, it translates that into speech. So as I uh, move through a web page, you know, I get told when something's a heading or a table or an image or a link, uh, if the image has uh, you know, an alt attribute with a text description, which is vital from my point of view, uh, the screen reader will read that alt attribute contents to, to describe the image to me. Uh, so yeah, all that, that information is just exposed by the browser, uh, picked up by the screen reader and, and translated into speech that I can understand. What are the types of organizations and companies that you work with to make their technology more accessible? Oh, lots of different sorts of organizations, large and small. Uh, I work for a, a U.S. company at the moment. So, uh, you know, we're working with a lot of uh, U.S. universities, government departments, uh, but also, you know, recognizable companies in, in the tech space. Um, you know, we've worked with uh, Adobe and Google, you know, and other companies who, who you know, want to know more about making their products accessible and and you know we can provide that help very interesting um so what i mean when when uh, when a developer loses sight and i i don't know how many you've encountered um is there like is there typically like a barrier of of discrimination or prejudice to to reclaiming the job post-disability? It's not something I've ever experienced for myself, but I'm very well aware that uh, it does happen, yes. Uh, and I don't think it's anything that's unique to engineering, particularly. I think it's just a very typical thing of society in general. Um, you know, I've heard many people with all kinds of different disabilities, not just uh, people who are blind say, you know, they, they've been more or less sort of dismissed from job interviews because, uh, you know, someone somewhere has, has basically said, you know, you've, you've got a disability, you can't possibly do the job. Um, so, yes, it is a, a, a very real thing. Um, whether that's, you know, more prevalent in the technology industry, I, I honestly don't know. I do know a lot of um, extraordinarily good blind developers and, and technologists of, of one sort or another. Um, so I know for, for sure we've got some really good ambassadors, um, you know, really good leaders 
you know, uh, kind of showing in a very practical sense, in a very real way, that uh, it's absolutely not the case that someone with a disability can't do these jobs. Um, but I suspect, you know, yeah, we've got our fair share of discrimination here too. How has the rise of smartphones affected what it's like to be blind and what it's like to be a blind technologist? They've made a, an extraordinary difference, actually. Uh, I I mean, I use mine, well, pretty much all the same things that, that everybody else does, you know, social media, email, even occasionally a phone call. But what's amazing about, um, about you know, smartphones and, and uh, these other devices is that they've really lowered the the barrier of getting assistive technologies. So, you know, Apple have done an extraordinary thing and all their devices now um, come with a screen reader built in for free. Now, you have to acknowledge that, you know, Apple devices are, are not the cheapest devices out there. But the fact that, the you know, this this technology is available as part of, uh, of the thing that you buy and, you know, they've they've taken great steps to make sure as far as they can, that, you know, apps, native apps and stuff for their devices are, are pretty accessible. Um, you know, Google followed suit. There's a, a, a free screen reader that's available for Android devices, um, you know, and they too have put in a lot of work making sure that, you know, the software developer kits that you use for creating native apps have, you know, pretty good accessibility advice or, you know, quality baked in. So, so from a sort of development point of view, um, you know, that they've, they've changed things a great deal. But also in terms of, um, you know, I've got apps on my phone that will uh, tell me what kind of paper money I've got. So here in the UK, money is a different, uh, it's all different sizes. So, you know, 50 pounds is, is a different size note to a 20 pound note. But of course, you guys in the States, uh, all your yeah. all your money is exactly the same size. So, you know, now I can just point my phone, at, uh, you know, uh, one of your dollar bills and it'll tell me tell me, you know, which denomination note it is. Um, I've got an app that tells me what color things are. Uh, I habitually wear black all the time, so this one isn't so much of a, a useful thing for me. But, you know, <laughs> there are times when it's quite nice just to know, you know, what color something is that you're looking at. My, my phone will do that. Uh, I've got an app that will let me take a picture of um, something like, say, a menu in a restaurant, and it will... Uh, convert that picture of text into plain text and then the screen reader on my phone can just speak it to me so you know it's now possible for me you know to sit in a restaurant uh, and you know take a picture of a menu and actually read it for myself so it's opened up the you know all these just amazing you know uh, activities that before were either expensive to accomplish impossible to accomplish or or just too cumbersome to do you know in 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 the context uh, you know you've all got this now on your little device you can stick in your pocket and carry around with you and for the most part you know these apps just cost you know a couple of quid you know, some of them are more expensive but but you know the the cost is considerably less than the the, the old analog equivalent what about diabetes monitoring are there tools for the smartphone that have helped with that <laughs> in general yes the real irony in all of the above is that i have yet to find a really accessible 
diabetes monitoring app for blind people, <laughs> which it never fails to amaze me. Actually. It's, it's just staggering. You think, so I think, yeah, I, I don't know about globally, but certainly in, in a lot of um, developed countries, diabetic retinopathy is, is usually one of the top three causes of blindness. And you kind of think, well, <laughs> you know, we live in a society where, you know, you, you've got this primary condition that all too often causes a secondary condition and yet the, the, the tools uh, you know for managing it are, are you know still rarely cover the intersection yeah absolutely so you know I, I like all diabetics I, I prick my finger to test blood glucose levels and I have a talking device you know that, that I can do that with um, but that device is also capable of being plugged into my computer so I can you know do interesting things with the test results on my computer, you know, you know, just look for, you know, analysis and patterns and all the rest of it. But that software isn't accessible. <laughs> so, so somebody somewhere, you know, they created these talking blood glucose monitoring devices, which are designed for blind people, but then what? sort of forgotten what? about, the, <laughs> you know, forgotten about the next bit, which is it's, it's ludicrous. It really is. Um, Why isn't there some kind of dongle that you can plug into your phone that, you know, you prick your finger and the dongle communicates with the phone and then you have the diabetes monitoring stuff just all in your phone. I, I suspect actually that there, there probably are projects uh, where people okay. are working on that thing. And I know in, in the US, you have a lot more um, technologies available to diabetics uh, than we do here in the UK. Uh, I don't know if it's because our sort of medical review processes over here are you know, more stringent, I doubt it, but uh, uh, it may be budgetary, I, I, I don't know. But we also use different mechanisms for measuring blood glucose levels in the US and the UK, so I can't even come over to the States and <laughs> buy mm. some technology and take it home with me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it will improve. Uh, I I know from reading a thread on Hacker News recently, um, after someone posted my article there, um, that there are actually some open source projects where people are working on apps and, and and thinking about these things. So, you know, I'm hopeful that somebody will figure it out soon and hopefully with more power to them, make an awful lot of money for themselves and show the rest of the world that it's a good thing to do for, you know, business reasons as well as uh, ethical reasons. To, to get a better picture of the narrative arc of your story, how did you end up working on accessibility software. I mean, it's, it's certainly uh, an understandable route to have taken uh, after that, but I'm just curious, what was the series of events that led to you working on accessibility software? It actually happened by accident, uh, which always surprises people because the logical conclusion is, is, you know, because I lost my sight, I developed an interest in, in making things more accessible and then went to work to do something about it but uh it wasn't that organized i'm afraid i somewhere not long after i started to use my computer again i had joined uh an email list for people who use the the screen reader that i i do most often and one day somebody posted an email this would have been uh very early 2002 i think and this person whose name was Alistair said uh, he worked for a, a new company and they just built their first website and the client didn't have budget to test the website with people with different disabilities. But when they built the website, they tried very hard to follow accessibility guidelines from the W3C 
and they'd welcome any feedback from screen reader users to you know to tell them how they 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 had done and, and whether there were things they could do to improve it and so i i thought well you know i used to be a web developer um i'm definitely now a screen reader user so perhaps i can i can help so i i, I went and had a look at this website and i, I sent an email to to alistair with some feedback and uh, and we got talking and it turned out that the the company he worked for was just about 25 30 miles away from where i lived at the time mm. so i started just doing occasional bits of work for them you know reviewing websites and you know writing reports for them and uh eventually became you know uh, a, a full-time employee of theirs as, as, as the startup kind of you know found its feet uh that was sort of 2003 um i think i was employee Employee number six, I think, in the company. Uh, when I left a couple of years ago, uh, they were well on their way to heading past 60 people, you know, and a, and a really good business turnover. So I, I'd stayed with them, you know, for 11 odd years, uh, seeing them through kind of lots of transitions. And it just so happened that, you know, accessibility was a big part of, of what that company uh, was about, that and that and usability. Um, so, yes, it, it was really just a, a chance encounter response to an email that, that led to it and you know nothing more than that really interesting and then after since then you've just been doing kind of consultative work or uh yes yes pretty much uh, i mean the, the 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 company i was just mentioning you know consultancy was a large part of their their business um so to some extent you know that that's been a focus of mine um you know all through that sort of period up until the current day um, but now the company I work with, uh, the Paciello Group, uh, uh, their focus is a lot more on the kind of engineering side and, and you know, development and code. So uh, probably for the first time actually in quite a long time, I'm, I'm able to actually really get back into the, you know, the, the, the detail of, of, of how things are built and how they work and, and how they can be made to work better, which is nice. So I'm enjoying it. So, so speaking of that, I mean, if there's a listener out there right now who's you know, building something a web a web developer. What are there are there libraries or tools or best practices that that developer can use to improve accessibility? Uh, yes, there are. So uh, if you're thinking about sort of widget component libraries, uh, jQuery UI has some pretty good accessibility baked into it. Uh, you need to keep. A little bit of caution when it comes to uh, the, the JavaScript frameworks like Angular, Ember, and React. They tend to have pretty poor accessibility by mm. default, but uh, there's you know a growing community of people working on improving that, and there are you know some good tools available. Um, in fact, for all three of those uh, frameworks I just mentioned, um, there are npm packages for you know accessibility testing tools that you can you can factor into your build environment, uh, which will help kind of, you know, run some checks and, and point you in the right direction of things that might need fixing. Uh, there are guidelines uh, called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines from the W3C, uh, and they provide sort of fairly broad brush uh, guidance on things you need to think about. So making sure people can use your website uh, without a mouse. So people like myself, obviously, we just use a keyboard. We don't use a mouse. Um, making sure that you know people can read and see content in the things you're building, um, you know, 
like a lot of accessibility, actually, most of this advice is just really good advice for making things usable by everybody, you know. Yeah. Making kind of text comfortable to read is, is just common sense. If, if you've got something important on your website, you know, and presumably you think it's important because you've put it on the web, uh, there's no point in making it kind of too difficult for people to read. So, so yeah, the web content accessibility guidelines, um, you know, have lots of advice and, and techniques on, on a whole bunch of different things you can do. Um, that's very web focused rather than sort of mobile or, or, or native app, but it's, um, it's a good, good place to start. Beyond that, you know, there are countless blogs uh, and places to go for information. Um, uh, the W3C has an email list uh, called WAI-IG, which is open to everybody. Um, it's got about eight or 900 people who are very interested in accessibility there, um, where you can ask questions. Uh, there is um, a Gitter and a Slack uh, channel um, called A11Y Slackers. Um, which is uh, also plugs into IRC, uh, which has got another couple of hundred um, very technically minded accessibility people hanging out there. So, you know, it's a great place for developers to, to come and hang out, uh, ask questions, um, you know, share information. Um, I spend a lot of time, you know, talking and chatting there uh, with lots of people. Uh, you know, blogs like uh, WebAIM has a lot of uh, great accessibility information. Um, the company I work for, TPG, the Paciello Group, we post regularly on a blog. Um, so, yeah, you know, just looking around on Twitter, the web, um, there's plenty of stuff out there um, because there are a lot of people thinking about this, which is is really good. Do, do you keep track of the types of innovations that uh, people are kind of working on to um, to fix this type of so to fix your type of condition, like to fix diabetic retinopathy. I don't know whether that's some sort of like brain to computer interface or you know stem cell for eyes. Do you do you track this stuff? Uh, I do a bit, yes. Um, and and there is some really interesting work going on in in sort of two different areas. You mentioned stem cell research. That's definitely one one area of research that has possibilities you know in terms of uh, being able to to you know in my case you know regrow my my retinas which have have long since disappeared uh but also you know perhaps in time actually being able to you know replenish or or, or grow or whatever the word might be you know entire eyeballs for for you know people who who have actually lost those perhaps through an accident or something. Um, at the moment, I think I'm rather more hopeful of the technology side of things, but then perhaps I would say that. Um, so there's a lot of research being done into technologies that will let you wear a camera on a pair of glasses, and they will then transmit uh, signals to a chip that would be implanted uh, in your brain, probably somewhere around about the optic nerve or the back of your eye and that would very simply sort of, you know, send light signals uh, that you'd be able to to perceive. Uh, and there've been some, you know, trials with this where um, they've managed to do this quite successfully in a very, very uh, crude and basic way. So we're just talking, um, you know, tens of, the equivalent of sort of, you know, tens of pixels wide by high. So, you know, really not much more than being able to see you know, so tic tic tac toe kind of board, but but you know it's a start. But people are willing to have chips implanted in their brain to try that. Yep. 
Yep, yep. There have already been some pretty successful trials, um, and, and you know the resolution. Even just in the you know the, the few years that I've been sort of keeping an eye on this, you know the resolution of what's possible in that regard seems to have improved. Um, you know there are still a lot of challenges and a long way to go, but uh, but yep, you know there, there, there's really sort of positive research being done in in that area. Um, How well is the interface between like the brain and computers understood <laughs> that i'm not sure i can answer that. um given that we seem to understand relatively little about the brain altogether yeah my, my hunch is probably not as much as we really ought to know before we start <laughs> screwing around with some of this stuff but yeah but you know what if if we humans ever you know stop to think about what we were doing a lot of the time we probably wouldn't make half the progress that we do so you know um I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's, there's some amazing possibilities. I mean, uh, you know, I know there's research being done into um, the ability to control technology just using your mind. Um, again, some really, you know, significant steps have been made there, which is, you know, extraordinary for people with physical disabilities, you know, to be able to, to think about doing something. And, you know, we start to see this now in a lot of sort of prosthetic limb development where, you know, they're, they're actually able to sort of tap into the nerves and, and muscles. And so you can actually, you know, control a prosthetic hand, for example, uh, in roughly the same way that you would control uh, an actual hand by, you know, just thinking that you want to move and pick something up or make some gesture. So, you know, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of research in a lot of, you know, kind of medical fields with that and, and probably, you know, gaming, actually. <laughs> gaming is the place you want to look, actually, because if anything's, you know, if anything's new and interesting, actually, the gaming industry is quite likely to have tried it first. And uh, more often than not, actually, we can look to a lot of medical solutions from from those kind of industries. Um, I, I have heard some interesting things about, you know, uh, how like the what what is at the cross section of research and gaming? What what do you see there? Um. I think there's some some interesting things. So I, I read about some research that Disney was doing about a year ago into um, I, I forget what they called it, but it was basically using air to provide tactile feedback for gaming. So uh, to give you the impression that you know a tennis ball had just whistled past your ear because <sighs> you missed the shot, just using you know sharp puffs of air um, and and you know other you know, sort of strengths and, and, and blasts of air, if you like. And, you know, that's that's got some quite interesting possibilities from, from an accessibility point of view. If you can if you can kind of create the impression of, um, you know, physicality, it, it, you know, that's enough to convince someone, you know, as I say, a sort of, you know, ball's just gone whistling past their ear. Uh, you know, imagine what you could do to try and help people uh, who can't see an environment understand what's around them, for example. Um, or, you know, creating new interfaces or, or new ways of, of um, you know, getting responses out of our systems. So, uh, you know, at, at the moment, you know, you maybe hit a button on a website and it might cause a sound effect, but that's no good if you can't hear the sound effect. Or, you know, the button might look like it's been pressed, but that's no good if you can't see that it's been pressed. So, mm. you know, using these kind of different interaction modes, be it, you know, high pressure air or you know uh, vibration tactile feedback of one source or another um you know all these things you know they've got their kind of origins in the gaming industry 
Um, but, you know, they have, have interesting possibilities for, for the ways people interact with kind of the web and technology on a day-to-day -day basis, I think. It's fascinating. Um, so I guess I'd, I'd like to begin to close off. Um, do you have any uh, recommendations for uh, like reading material for for our listeners like to to either to the things that have helped uh with your you know journey since con contracting diabetic retinopathy or um just things that help with uh you know empathy for um accessibility uh people who need accessibility um so any any kinds of resources that you think would be useful resources are difficult to suggest um, partly because I suppose I never really had to <laughs> had to look for resources on on how to sort of empathize because it was me that was you know going through the whole thing um, I, I suppose if I could offer one piece of advice it would be try not to sweat it too much I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I meet a lot of people and We'll be talking, and and they'll suddenly say, you know, did you go and see Martian at the movies? And they're, oh, oh I'm sorry, <laughs> I, di I, I didn't mean to say, did you see? It? You know what? It, it's kind of okay. I, I, yes, I did go and see that movie. Uh, no, I didn't see it, but I, I watched it. You know, I, okay. I, I still say, you know, I, I, I read that book. You know what I mean? And and people get very worried about accidentally offending or or upsetting someone who has has a disability and and you know sure you, you get some grumpy people with disabilities that, that'll get offended no matter what you say but you get grumpy people that get offended anyway that's you know right. that's nothing to do with the disability but but most of us you know what if, if if you mean if you mean the right thing we're smart enough to to know you meant the right thing we're not going to get tangled up on you know language and and, and things like that so you know, the, the 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 best thing you can do is just, uh, uh, you know, just just get on with it. Just just talk to people. Use the language you would normally use. You know. Um, are there are there any other projects that you're working on currently that you haven't mentioned? Um, well, I I do a lot of work with the W3C, so uh, I work a lot on things like the HTML specification, ARIA. Um, and other bits and pieces. So that takes up a, a, a lot of my time. I've uh, just become one of four co-chairs responsible for the web platform working group that's responsible for specs like HTML and uh, and uh, uh, document object model and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So uh, I don't know if you can call that a side project, but <laughs> it, it's certainly uh, you know something that, that's taking up a lot of time. Uh, I'm pretty interested in SVG. And accessibility at the moment. Um, working huh. with some some friends on on you know what we can do to make SVG more accessible uh, to different people. And what kinds of things are you thinking about there? Well, at the moment, uh, SVG itself doesn't have a lot of accessibility. So, like I was saying, that you know the browser knows what most HTML elements do in an accessibility sense. Uh, we don't really have that in SVG at the moment. It's coming in in SVG two. But right now, if you put some some SVG, you know, into a browser, the browser doesn't really make any accessibility information available. So screen readers kind of just look at it and go, nah, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so we're looking at uh, a kind of yeah, getting SVG two 
more accessible natively. Um, but what I'm looking at at the moment with, with a friend is how we can use technologies like ARIA to add some of that accessibility information into SVG in the same way we've used ARIA to do the same for, for HTML for a while now. Um, and it, it, it's proving an, <laughs> an interesting exercise because, you know, so many variables. There's you know, SVG itself, different browsers, different screen readers, different techniques for, for adding in the accessibility. So, yeah, that's it's proving a, a head-scratching but, but satisfyingly head-scratching project at the moment. Fascinating. Well, Leonie Watson, thanks for coming out to Software Engineering Daily. It's been really interesting talking to you. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for asking me.